great pleasure uh, to introduce tonight's lecturer, Professor Agnes Callard. Professor Callard earned her PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, and prior to that, her bachelor's degree at the University of Chicago, where, among other things, she studied in a program called Fundamentals, Issues, and Texts, a kind of cousin of the St. John's program focusing on great books. She's published many articles and given lectures on topics such as gratitude, anger, unrestraint, deliberation, refutation, often working with Plato or Aristotle, more recently, Elena Ferrante. Last year saw the appearance of her first book, Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming, which came out with Oxford University Press. Professor Callard teaches in the philosophy department at the University of Chicago, uh, where two years ago she received the Quantrell Award for excellence in undergraduate teaching. And finally, uh, she has paid our college a great compliment, having heard about the peculiar tradition of Friday night lectures and the long question periods that followed. She instituted at Chicago a late night philosophy forum called the Night Owls. Please join me in welcoming Professor Agnes Kellard. Thank you so much. It is a huge thrill to be here. So you've probably noticed that love sometimes hurts. Um, you love someone or you love something, some institution, you really care about it, and the way in which your caring manifests is that you feel terrible. And my question really is like, how is that possible? How can love hurt? Um, loving people, say, say people, right? It's our most powerful way of like positively valuing them. But it opens us up to these negative experiences, right? Like, um, you know, heartbreak, fury, grief, indignation, despair. And it's true not just for people. It's true for institutions, um, experiences, activities. So basically what we have is a situation where positively valuing generates negative experiences. It's such a familiar fact of life that I don't think we really, um, well, we have trouble seeing it as puzzling. And like a big part of my job today is just to try to get you to see this as a puzzle. Um, you know, because you're only motivated to sort of scratch the surface of some phenomenon when like the surface looks cracked. In this case, I think the crack is kind of one that we're really used to seeing, so used to seeing it that we've sort of convinced ourselves it's part of the design. We don't see it as a crack anymore. All right. So why is it puzzling that valuing something should generate negative experiences? Well, think about it this way. To value something, like say I value, say I deeply value this cup of water because it's like a really beautiful, right? It's got this nice carved, you know, actually it is a really nice cup of water. I'm going to take a sip. It's very elegant, right? So I value it, right? What is it for me to value it? Well, it's got some value, right? And the value of it, when I value it, the value of it like comes home to me, right? So um, its value finds a place in me. 
I mean, in this case, paradigmatically, it would be in the form of a kind of like aesthetic experience of how beautiful it is. But like, you could also imagine it manifesting in like, say this were an auction, right? And I'm going to bid really high on this cup because I value it. So my bidding could be a manifestation of my valuing of it, right? Um, so, you know, what's basically happening when I value it is like the outer goodness, the goodness of this thing, gets like an inner ambassador in me, right? Um, the valuing happening in me is like the inner goodness that corresponds to the outer goodness of this thing. The puzzle is that sometimes the way in which we appreciate or engage with or kind of like house the value of something like a work of art um, is by having negative emotions like grief, anger, disappointment, um, sadness, right? And in those sorts of cases, it's almost like the ambassador has been compromised, right? Like, you know, why is a good thing out there getting represented by a bad thing in here, right? It's a little bit like, um, you know, touching a hot thing and feeling cold or looking at the sea and seeing the mountains or something. Um, why does apprehension of positive value take the form of a negative feeling? Now, you might respond, like, that's crazy. There's no paradox here, right? Um, let's, th let's, let's consider an example, right? So suppose that I'm pained by my child crying. You know, we're on the plane. My child has to be strapped into the car seat. He's, like, freaking out and crying, and I feel terrible, right? Um, well, I'm having a negative response in response to a negative thing. My child's suffering, right? So it's... It's not like I'm having a negative response to a positive thing. It's not good that my child is suffering, right? Or here, take another case. Um, say I'm, you know, I have a friend, and on, they, they fail to rise to the occasion somehow, right? And I'm disappointed. Well, in that sort of case, I'm not... Um, I have a bad feeling in response to a bad thing, their failure to rise to the occasion, um, or I'm, I'm angry. I'm angry that my country isn't functioning the way that I want it to be, right? Well, I'm, having, I'm responding to a bad thing by feeling bad. That makes perfect sense. Negative emotions are response to bad events, right? Where's the paradox? Well, you can re-encounter it really quickly if you just scratch the surface of those examples, right? So think about the case where I'm upset with my, because my child is crying on the plane, right? Um, so... You know, imagine that, like, I have a neighbor on the plane, and, like, so she also sees my child crying. But she's not, like, deeply empathetically upset about my child crying. She might just be, like, a little bit irritated. Um, why do I have such a different reaction to my child crying than my neighbor? Well, the answer is, like, because I value my child. I love my child in a way that my neighbor on the plane doesn't, right? Um, but that's to say that my, my love for my child in some way is my seeing my child's suffering as being bad, right? So the apprehension of the badness of my child's suffering, right, is, is a manifestation of my love for my child. Whereas my neighbor who doesn't love my child doesn't see the suffering as bad. So in some sense, like, there's sort of no bad thing for my neighbor on the plane. No, bad, no really bad thing is happening. The really bad thing is only happening, so to speak, for me, just in terms of my response to it, right? And so now here's our question. Why does love, a good thing, 
lead me to see something as bad. Um, Because it looks like my empathetic distress, my apprehension of the badness of my child's suffering just is my love, which is to say just is my valuing of my child. Similarly, right, with the other two cases, right, if, if I wouldn't care about my friend's failure to rise to the occasion unless I really valued that friend, right, you might see that my friend do the same thing uh, as I see, but it doesn't bother you because they're not your friend, you don't value them. So the fact that they didn't rise to the occasion is not upsetting for you, right? And so the, the, the negative feeling that you, the negative feeling that I feel about my friend's failure to rise to the occasion or my child's suffering is my love, which is to say that my love is directing me, directing my attention to a bad thing out there, right? Um, And it's sort of the flip side of the original way of putting the question. Why does something like love direct your attention to suffering, failure, and injustice? Love is a form of valuing, and those aren't things you should value. You shouldn't value. Those are all bad things, right? Um, So why does a good thing in here, love, right, attach itself to bad things out there, suffering, failure, and injustice? Okay. Now, once again, you might say, this question is not that hard to answer. And this is our dialectic over and over again, right? Because I want to grant you that there doesn't seem to be a puzzle here, and I want to try to make the puzzle appear for you. Um, you might say, look, if you love your child, you don't want them to cry, Right? So if you love your child, say, you want them to be happy. Um, and, um, and so when that desire is frustrated and they're unhappy, then you feel a negative emotion. Um, when you, um, you know, love your friend, right, you want them to rise to the occasion. When you love your country, you want your country to um, not to disappoint you. And so the idea would be, look, these negative emotions that we feel when we value something, when we love it or deeply care about it, those negative emotions are the byproducts of frustrated desires, where the desire is really the valuing, right? So we've now, what we've done is kind of address the paradox by um, doing a kind of like division of labor between what is valuing proper and what is an effect of valuing, right? So when you value something, you have certain desires with respect to it, and that opens you up to certain kinds of emotional vicissitudes in the event that your desire is not satisfied. So the, um, the valuing is the desiring, but then there's a kind of emotional reaction to valuing, right, that is happening when I'm suffering with my child or when I'm disappointed in my friend. Okay. Um, so that's, that's actually one theory of valuing that I just gave you, is that valuing is desiring. And on the theory that valuing is desiring, um, emotional reactions aren't themselves instances of valuing. So when I have an emotional reaction to something, that doesn't constitute my valuing or my loving of it. It's just an effect of my valuing or loving of it. Um, Before I even go further and talk more about this theory and whether it's correct, let me just give you another theory that would also solve the problem. So that theory, if if it were true that loving or valuing were just desiring, there would be no problem here, okay? Um, Because there'd be no problem about how can an emotional, um, a negative emotional reaction be 
valuing if it isn't valuing, right? If it's just an effect of valuing. Um, so that's, that'd be one way to solve the problem. Here's another way to solve the problem. You might think, um, look, to value something is to believe that it's good. So not to desire anything with respect to it, but just to have beliefs about it. Um, now, if valuing something is believing that it's good, well, you could sort of see how if you value something and you have these beliefs, not just that it's good, but also other beliefs like that it's good for the thing to flourish, that it's good for the thing to be protected, that it's good for the thing to live up to its expectations, etc., like all those beliefs, well, maybe you'll have an emotional reaction to one of those beliefs being shown to be false, right? And so maybe these emotional reactions are like the after effects of having those beliefs, Okay, so it's kind of parallel to the desire analysis, right? The thought is, look, there's something that constitutes loving or valuing. I'm using those really synonymously here, right? Okay, loving or valuing, namely either desiring the thing to flourish or having certain beliefs about it's being good for the thing to flourish. And then you can have emotions as byproducts of those desires not being satisfied or those beliefs being shown to be false, say. So those... Um, that would be a way of solving the problem. Um, but it seems implausible to me. So if this were the right solution, then you could imagine somebody loving someone, say, fully loving them, but just not having these byproduct emotions, somehow turning them off. So you could turn them off with a pill, right? Um, so they never, like, imagine somebody loves you, but they, they're never happy when you're happy. They don't feel any joy in your presence. They are not proud of things that you do. Um, they, um, you know, they don't take pleasure in your company. They don't feel affection for you, right? But they, they believe that you're a good person. They believe that it's good if you flourish, right? And they desire for you to, um, uh, you know, flourish and be a good person, all that, but they don't feel it. Now, I would say if someone felt that way about me, it wouldn't feel like love. Um, it, it would feel something like a little bit more abstract than love. Um, so maybe, I mean, I didn't put this, I think, on your handout, but there's a pass. Oh, no, I did. Okay. So let me, I want to skip to a passage from the Iliad. Um, it says that the, on page two, right above where it says sticky attitudes, okay? So this is Hector talking to his brother Paris, um, and he is, um, you know, this is where Paris doesn't want to go fight, <laughs> and um, Hector is trying to tell him, like, this whole war is really kind of about, like, you and this woman that you stole, and it's pretty embarrassing that you're not willing to go out there and fight. Um, so Hector says to Paris, you're a good soldier, but you hang back of your own accord, refuse to fight. And that, that's why the heart inside me aches when I hear our Trojans heap contempt on you, the men who bear such struggles all for you. So what we have here is like Hector feeling this deep sadness about Paris's failure to live up to a kind of normative ideal, right, of going off to fight. And he's not saying that I'm upset with you because you're going to lower our reputation, right, because, like, um, if people say bad things about you, our family looks bad. He's saying I'm upset with you because these people are saying bad things about you, and they're right. 
And these things are actually true, and it breaks my heart that they're true. And that is Hector's love for Paris. That's the form that his love takes right there. And so I want to say, it just seems to me that we don't want to give up on the idea that emotions are genuinely ways of valuing. They're ways of loving. Um, we, we wouldn't feel like um, somebody loved us if they never felt any emotions with respect to us. And when we do see emotional expressions, they don't just seem like after effects of love. They actually just seem like love. So that's just my, um, um, you know, why I don't like this solution, right? The solution that in some sense an emotion would almost be like a kind of like allergic reaction to love, right? Um, that is, you have, you're, you're sort of susceptible to having these reactions given that you love. I want to say no, emotion is loving, Okay, so if you think emotions are loving, to have the emotion is to love or is to value, then you end up with this question, well, valuing is appreciating the goodness of something, so how can you do that by having a bad experience, right? Um, so, um, and I don't think I put the name on here. At some, po- uh, some versions of the site come up with a name for this, and then the name, oh yeah, well, I put it on your title, so it's bivalence, right? Um, I call it sometimes the bivalence paradox. It's paradoxical that the emotional experience of love is bivalent, which is to say that it's both positive and negative, right? And the reason why that's, that's paradoxical is it should just be positive because we only love and value good things. So why should that ever take the form of a negative experience? Okay. So we're now um, sort of granting um, that emotions are ways of valuing. But what if you were to grant that, but only for the positive emotions? You would get out of the problem. So that's kind of a sophisticated way to get out of the problem, right? So I want to consider a few philosophers who, it's not that they've quite said what I just said, but they say something in the vicinity of it. And it's quite shocking. So it's like, it's interesting what a shocking theory you produce when you try to make this move. Okay. Um, So... There are, a bunch of, there are a bunch of philosophers who, in one way or another, have argued that um, the, just the negative side of the emotion, the, that isn't really valuing, or it isn't really rational, or it isn't really sane. Say. So the first one um, is Rudiger Bittner, who argues that it is never reasonable to regret what you have done. You heard that correctly. That's really what he argues. Um, no, even if it was super horribly evil, you shouldn't regret it. No matter how bad it was, you should never regret it. Not right away, not years later, never. Um, uh, let me read you a passage from Bittner that's on your handout on the first page. It is not evident that one could not see in full clarity but without grief what one did wrong. In fact, the contrary may be true, that with grief one could not see in full clarity what one did wrong. After all, to see such a thing is itself an achievement, and hurt, torn, and dejected by regret, we may not be capable of doing it. And here's your next passage. To look things straight in the face, unburdened by grief, is just a very good idea, and a good idea in the same sense in which it is a good idea, say, to have the snow tires mounted before the first snowfall. True, there is this difference. Some people do mount their snow tires in time, but few people are likely to take in their failings without regret. Still, this shows only that some forms of unreason are more common and harder to eradicate than others. 
Okay. So Bittner's view is that regret just adds this unnecessary pain to the wrong already done, right? Double misery, he says, the second for the sake of the first. And that such a pain has no productive function. He says, regret doesn't make doing better in the future more probable. All right. So Bittner's thought is, look, there's just this kind of like negative experience floating around that you've just added to the story when you've added regret in. And it's not like doing any work. It's just kind of making you miserable. So you just shouldn't ever regret. You you should um, know that you did something wrong and you should try to correct it, but you shouldn't feel regret. All right. So that's Bittner's case against regret. Martha Nussbaum... Um, argues that anger is always normatively problematic in that it disposes one to vengeance, either in the form of payback or like trying to raise your status relative to the other person. So Nussbaum thinks you should never be angry at anyone no matter what they do. Pretty crazy, right? Okay. Um, So, you know, like Bittner... She understands anger as being something unnecessary for the apprehension of the wrong. She wants to say, sure, you should believe that they did something wrong. You should have that belief. That's not the same thing as anger. It's not the same thing as this, like, bad feeling that is not doing any work and just making you feel bad and making you do bad things. Um, Okay, final final example. Wilkinson. his case is against grief, and he's really thinking specifically about grief over the death of a loved one, say. Um, and he says that it is indistinguishable from a mental disorder. Um, and in fact, he, he makes a really compelling case because what he does is look at the um, DSM 4 definition of a mental disorder and um, shows you that grief, the normal grief that you feel, the death of a loved one, just fits the definition. Really interestingly, the DSM-5, which came out like maybe 10 years after Wilkinson's paper, changed the definition, so it actually no longer fits. <laughs> maybe they read his paper. I don't know. That would be cool, like philosophy in action, right? Um, but so here's what Wilkinson says. Um, this is why grief is a mental disorder. First, it involves pain or suffering. Second, it involves some kind of incapacity or interruption of normal functioning. So here's Wilkinson's thought. Grieving people suffer, and they're not productive members of society. They don't experience or generate value. And just to that extent, there is something wrong with them. Okay. So, look, I just want to grant to you that these views strike most people and even most philosophers as incredible and inhumane. Um, But there is a certain kind of logic to them or maybe more precisely, a kind of recoil at a lack of logic. So, um, you know, Nussbaum scorns anger as involving kind of magical thinking that you can undo the past. And Bittner derides regret as involving a mythical idea that you could sort of atone for your suffering by feeling bad. I think, I think that I'm, I'm sort of trying to diagnose what's behind these, these arguments, and I think that what's behind them is what strikes them as absurd or irrational or ill is the idea that a form of valuing should be so intimately associated with disvalue. 
they're looking at anger and grief and regret, and they're like, only bad stuff comes of those. So how could they be forms of valuing? It looks like, no, they're just kind of illnesses that we'd be better off without. Um, they don't seem to involve experiencing, grasping, or producing value. So how can they be forms of valuing? How could they be kind of twins to pride, enjoyment, um, happiness, joy, right? Okay, so, um, you know, they don't say this, right? But I'm sort of, my thought is, um, if we wanted to systematize their views, we might say, that what they think is that the positive emotions are forms of valuing, whereas the negative emotions aren't. Um, and <clears throat> the negative emotions are just like allergic reactions, okay, to things not going well with the object of value, to which maybe your valuing disposes you. So one, one way to see this sort of crazy view is just as actually a more um, sophisticated version of the view that I considered where all emotions are just um, like allergic reactions to things, how things happen with the object of value. They just think, no, it's just the negative ones that are that. Okay. So what I want to say is we don't, this is an attempt to sort of motivate you to say, look, there is a real problem here. There's a real problem about how negative emotions can be forms of valuing given that they don't seem positive. <laughs> They don't seem like apprehensions of value. Um, it's such a big problem that some people, some philosophers, just want to give up on the idea that they're forms of valuing at all, either all emotions or negative emotions. I want to not give up on that. But in order to not give up on it, I, I'm going to have to say some things that are a little counterintuitive. So prepare yourself. Okay, before I do that, I kind of want to step back for a minute and talk about what valuing is, because I haven't done that yet. I've talked about what it isn't. So I said to you, look, some philosophers think that to value something is just to have a certain set of desires with respect to it. Other philosophers think, no, to value something is to have a certain set of beliefs. That was a big debate in like the 80s between two sets of philosophers. Nowadays, um, I would say most philosophers working on valuing, what they say is, no, um, valuing is a kind of hybrid state where you have those desires, and you also have the beliefs, and you also have the emotional reactions, right? So it's like there's a cluster of things that you... So when I value, say, my child, right, here are some things that are true of me. I desire my child to be happy. I desire them, my child not to suffer. I believe that it's good for my child to be happy. I believe that it's good for my child to suffer. And then I also um, have certain characteristic emotional responses to my child doing well or badly, right? So this is on your handout on page, uh, under sticky attitudes, okay? So um, you might just, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, just posit that kind of hybrid approach to valuing. The valuing involves more than one thing. It involves believing, desiring, and feeling, okay? Um, and there's really, you know, a set of beliefs, a set of desires, a set of feelings. But... That's not enough. I can't define valuing that way as just having a set of beliefs, having a set of desires, having a set of feelings. Because um, consider, like, so one way to see why you might need more than one of those is take me. Uh, I believe that swimming is good. It's a good thing. 
It's good that there's swimming. I'm glad there are swimming pools, right? I believe it's a good thing. But I don't value swimming. I don't like swimming. I find it really boring. I never want to do it. Um, I, don't, I don't value swimming, and you can point to why. Well, I don't have the desires. I just have the belief, right? Um, or say, um, here's something. Now I'll regret having started this, but... Um, no, good. I can't find my pen, so I can't start. Uh, so here's something that I like doing. I like twirling my pen. Um, I do it all the time. I do it reflexively. I enjoy doing it. Um, I enjoy it to the point where I was at a conference maybe six months ago, and um, I, uh, I put my pen down on the table, and the person sitting next to me, it was a really cool pen that clicks in a really cool way, and he just picked it up and started like playing with it so that I couldn't twirl it, and I found myself just filled with this like rage that I couldn't express because it was like the conference was going on. I'm just like, give me back my pen, right? Okay, so I really like it, right? That just shows how much I like it. Uh, Okay, but I don't think it's good. It's not good. Don't start twirling your pens because you won't be able to stop. It's really annoying. You drop the pen all the time. It creates a disruption. Um, You basically irritate everyone around you at every kind of like academic event that you're at for your whole life if you do this. It's not good. Okay, so I don't value twirling pens, even though I... I, I like doing it. I have the desire. So there you can sort of see why we might want both the belief and the desire. Um, and even those two might not be enough, right? Um, so, you know, um, say, like take this example. Um, say that I believe that classical music is good, right? Um, I, um, I think it's good that it exists. And say that I, I um, enjoy listening to it, right? It's, I find it pleasant. Um, but I think it's a waste of time, actually, for me to do it, because I think I should be devoting my life to political activism. shouldn't be wasting any time listening to classical music. And, um, and so, like, there it looks like I have the belief and I have the desire. This may not have been a perfectly constructed example, so if you want to press me on this in question period. You're welcome to. Um, but you might say, su- suppose that like what I lack there is a kind of emotional resonance with the music that makes the music just seem really important to me, right? Um, I, I, I have this experience, this, I kind of trivialize the experience of it, right? So you might say, I don't value it. One mark of that is like, if I could take a pill to get rid of the belief and the desire, I would, because I'd be wasting my time less. Okay, or at least the desire, because it's motivating me. So Um, you might say, well, in order to value something, you want all three of these components. You want the belief, you want the desire, you want the emotions. But even that's not going to be enough, right? Because you could imagine somebody who has all three, but in a kind of Franken-valuer way, where we make a Frankenstein's monster out of the people that I just described, right? So, um, like, say there's somebody who believes the classical music is good, but in that kind of abstract, offhand way that I believe that swimming is good, right? They're like, sure, I think the world's a better place because there's classical music in it. And they also, like, happen to enjoy listening to it, but in kind of, like, that addictive way that I like spinning my pens. They, they wish they could stop. And they actually have an emotional response to it, too, right? 
Um, but it's this weird thing where the emotional response only started when their father died. Their father loved this music. And when the father died, it's sort of the way in which they dealt with the grief is that they somehow came to like have the father's responses to the music. Which are like emotionally inhabiting the father's response. But it's like weird to them that they're doing this, right? And they're weirdly dissociated from it. Um, and they still think like, yeah, it'd be better if I didn't ever listen to this music. I should be devoting myself to political activism. Okay. So this is kind of like a Frankenstein's monster valuer, right? Where they meet all three conditions, but they don't meet them in the right way. They're somehow not stuck together in the right way, right? You want, so in the actual case of valuing, the believing and the desiring and the feeling are all somehow connected. So I want to try to sort of articulate for you what it means for them to all be connected. Um, so um, we can think of this sort of example. Take, so let's the, consider the, the sort of Frankenstein's monster valuer of classical music that I just described, right? Where he wishes that he didn't value it, um, but he has the beliefs, the desires, and the emotional responses. Um, and suppose there's somebody else. So we'll call him Frank, like Frankenstein. And suppose there's someone else who really genuinely values the music. Um, and now suppose we expose them both to sort of like evidence that um, appreciation of classical music is the product of a kind of culturally chauvinist indoctrination campaign. Something like that, right? Okay, how's Frank going to respond to that? He might be like, oh, that's interesting. It's interesting to learn that, right? Um, but Val, I mean, she deeply loves this music and values it. That's going to be like a painful thing for her to learn. Um, Consider another example. Here's an example that hits close to home for me. Um, so I really care about teaching. It's really important to me. I value it, right? Um, suppose I have a colleague, right, who he believes it's important in the abstract, right? Um, but he doesn't really value it. And now let's imagine that both of us are presented with the book that came out this year called The Case Against Education, um, which proposes that... Um, uh, education is really just signaling, which is to say um, the higher education produces to employers signals of who has both the right genetic material and the kind of stick to succeed at a job where nothing that they actually learn during that time is relevant. Okay. Yeah, it's upsetting, right? Um, so, like... My colleague, who believes that education is valuable and important, he might read this book and be like, oh, interesting. Maybe I was wrong about that. I, like, can barely make it through the book. I'm so angry when I'm reading it, right? And, but there's, like, there's good, like, empirical evidence in this book that I have to confront. But it's hard for me. Okay. So one difference there is that my belief in the value of education is kind of sticky, whereas my colleague, who doesn't care that much about it, is kind of flexible, right? It's more just immediately responsive to the evidence. Um, you might also just think about, like, the difference between, you know, imagine that, uh, like, a young man is on trial for murder, and the juror, the jury is hearing evidence, and the mother is hearing evidence. They're going to respond differently to the evidence, right? The mother wants to believe that her son is innocent, whereas the juror's beliefs kind of go where the evidence takes him. Okay. So what I want to say is true when you value something. It's not just that you have these beliefs and these desires and these emotional reactions, but they're sticky. You, you kind of feel like you need to keep having them. You want to hold on to them. Right? There are other kinds of beliefs and desires that we have where when we're presented with either 
reasons to stop believing the thing or you know, reasons to, to, to draw the conclusion that our desire can't be satisfied, then it just goes away, right? So like, for instance, I may want to catch the seven o'clock train, but if somebody tells me, oh no, that one's canceled, I don't keep wanting it, right? My desire just goes away. Or if, if I, you know, I believe this is water, right? Um, but if somebody's like, no, no, there's this funny St. John's tradition, they always put gin in the cup, right? Um, you know, I'm like, um, then I'd be like, okay, now I change my belief, right? That belief was slippery. It just moved in response to the evidence. So when you value something, the attitudes are not slippery. They're kind of sticky because um, you want to hold on to them. Okay. So what I want to say is that that's basically valuing. Valuing is having these sets of responses, but they're all sticky. Now, um, what happens when your attitudes are sticky is that um, when someone tries to take one of them away, that's kind of painful, right? And um, the, these attitudes can come under attack by the world, right? So say part of loving my um, you know, friend is the belief that he'll never betray me, right? I believe that about my friend, and that's part of the, val- the belief part of the valuing. Um, I believe that he's a good friend and won't betray me. Um, and now I'm, I'm confronted with evidence that he has betrayed me or he might betray me. That's going to be painful. And I think it's going to produce a kind of negative emotion because my, my value apparatus is being kind of threatened and attacked by the world. Um, let me just give you one example of this that I find particularly powerful. Um, it's from a TV show um, called The End of the Effing World. It was like a little mini-series based on a graphic novel. I'm kind of going to ruin it for you. I'm sorry, because it's really good. Um, uh, so in this mini-series slash graphic novel, teenage Alyssa idolizes the father that she's not seen for years. When she tracks him down, she learns that the letters that she's been receiving from him were, in fact, written by her mother, right? So her father is not the iconoclast that she took him to be. He's actually this narcissistic, wastrel jerk. Um, and she, and she, Alyssa, at some point, describes sort of value collapse, the collapse of her valuing of her father. Sometimes you realize that you've had a thing keeping you going that might be a lie, When you actually really understand that, that the whole thing might have been a lie the whole time, it's like you've swallowed a stone, but not recently. You swallowed it years ago. So she has this pain, right, of having swallowed a stone. And she still feels that pain even after she realizes that her relationship with her father is bad, that he's not a good person and it's not a valuable relationship, right? she still values him. She still values that relationship even after she sees that it isn't valuable. She has to keep valuing it because in order to feel the pain. The pain is her, her valuing. Um, <clears throat> so what's painful is not sort of swallowing the stone, right? That's went unnoticed. But it's kind of this acknowledged stone containment, this realization that the thing inside you, the value system inside you, is broken. Um, And 
the fact that there is such a thing as the painful experience of seeing your own value as mistaken suggests that those values continue to be operational even after they've collapsed, right? Okay. So essentially the account that I want to give you of negative experiences is that the negative, sorry, negative emotions is that negative emotions are how it feels to us when some bit of our value apparatus comes under attack by the world, like in the way that Alyssa's belief in the value of her relationship with her father came under attack. And we're still using that apparatus and trying to value with it even when it's damaged in that way. Um, <clears throat> so there's a kind of, there are going to be kind of two cases of valuing. The healthy case where all the bits of the apparatus are present and the unhealthy case. Um, and the way you're going to be able to tell the difference between them is that healthy valuing is going to happen where um, well, so let me see. Yeah, I think I put this on your handout. Um, so maybe I'll read the formulation that I gave you. Um, yeah, so uh, this is on the top of page three. Um, healthy valuing responds to a positive thing, the value of the valued object, in a positive way by valuing, appreciating, enjoying, promoting, or engaging with it. Healthy valuing is where you don't have a bivalence paradox. Okay. Um, and the thought is, un in unhealthy valuing, the way in which you attend to, engage with, and apprehend the goodness of something is by focusing on the badness of something else, like the badness of the betrayal, or the badness of the person's death, or the badness of the destruction of the work of art that you loved. Um, and my thought is, well, that's, that's unhealthy. It's, it's an imperfect case of valuing. And this is where insanity comes in. I mean, insane just means unhealthy, right? <laughs> um, and valuing is an activity of your mind, right? So we might say, well, it's kind of a, there's a kind of mental health issue here. Um, but unlike, say, Nussbaum, Bittner, Wilkinson, I want to say, yeah, but you really are still valuing. So the sense in which it is still healthy, you really are still valuing the thing when um, you have the negative emotion, so I kind of want to say that it's healthy and unhealthy at the same time. How can I do that? Well, think about it this way. Say, say you have a fever of 102. Is that a healthy temperature or not? Are you healthy if you have a fever of 102? No, you're sick, right? Having a fever of 102 means you're sick. But, um, but it's also true that like, if you have a viral infection, it's healthy to have a fever, right? That's a healthy response to being sick. Is to have It would be worse if your temperature didn't go up. So there's a way in which having a fever is a healthy way of being unhealthy, right? And I would say negative emotions are a little bit like that, right? They're um, the right way of responding to what is in some sense a bad valuational situation. Okay. Um, so I'm going to expand upon that, and then we'll have some Play-Doh, and then we'll be done. Um, so valuing something, when you value something, that means you have a kind of intentional object, right? There's some object that you value. That's all I mean. It's about something. We even use that language. Like, say I value a certain kind of music. We say, I'm all about that, right? I'm about something. But it's also true that when I value something, um, I have all these mental states, like these beliefs and these desires, right, that are about, well, whatever they're about. <laughs> I mean, uh, so I value... Um, I value, say, classical music by way of these, like, you know, the belief that classical music is good, the belief that it's good to inculcate a classical music education in people, the desire to go and listen to the concert, right? All these little, like, bottom-level attitudes are what make up my valuing. 
And the problem here is just like, in order to value in a healthy way, I need to keep those. I need those attitudes. They're sticky. But it just could be that like the way the world is wants to take those attitudes away from me. Because as a matter of fact, I can't go to the concert. And so I'm disappointed. Um, And it's a little bit like valuing is an animal made up of other animals. Where the big animal like can get indigestion from what the little animals eat right so you have these attitudes these beliefs and these desires that are already subject to norms you should believe on the basis of the evidence right but it's like when it's my son there um being questioned by the um prosecutor it's like i don't want to follow the evidence i just want my son to be innocent so there it's like the stickiness of my belief in my son's goodness is coming into conflict with the fact that my belief should follow the evidence okay um so um the the reason we have negative emotions the reason we have bivalence is that the way that we value things is is complicated and indirect um we have a, um, an, like a, an apparatus that is made up of these parts that are subject to their own rules. And so one way to see what's going on here is just to contrast a system that isn't like that. Imagine a simple theory of valuing. A simple theory of valuing would be, I just have a valuing faculty in me, and it just responds to value. And that's it. That's the whole story. No fancy beliefs and desires and feelings and any of that. There's, it's just sort of like I have a thermostat, Right? And whenever there's value in the room, the thermostat goes up. And whenever the value goes away, the thermostat goes down. Now, all that's ever going to happen there is, like, the more value there is, the more of the thermostat amount there'll be, right? Um, And so I'll I'll never, like, have a negative experience. I'll just have more or less of the positive one. So in that scenario, there's no bivalence. There's just more or less of valuing. That's what we get in Plato uh, in the symposium. So I'm going to read to you a passage. Well, let me tell you what's going on in this passage. Um, this is the culmination of Socrates' speech, right? And, um, you know, Socrates has been talking to you about how you go about loving people. And what he says is, well, you start by loving someone, by, like, so- loving some beautiful boy. But, like, what if you find another boy who's more beautiful than the first one? Well, then you should give him up and go for the more beautiful one, right? But what if, you know... Like, what about, like, the beauty of souls? That's even more beautiful than the beauty of bodies generally. So actually, you should just dump all the boys, the physical beauty, and love the beauty of souls. And he's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there something more beautiful than the beauty of souls? Yes, there's the beauty of laws and cultures and institutions. So when you discover that, you should forget about the, the boys altogether and love those. But is there anything more beautiful than that? Yes, there is the beauty of knowledge. And then finally, there's the beautiful itself. So Essentially, what Socrates is doing is like saying you should sort of climb this ladder in which you throw away the thing you loved before and just love the thing that's better. Always love the thing that's better, thinks Plato. Okay. So now, here's what happens when you do that. The very end of the story. This thing you love. It always is and neither comes to be nor passes away, neither waxes nor wanes. It is not beautiful this way and ugly that way, nor beautiful at one time and ugly in another, nor beautiful in relation to one thing and ugly in relation to another, nor is it beautiful here but ugly there as it would be if it were beautiful for some people and ugly for others, nor will the beautiful appear to this person, who's the expert in loving, in the guise of a face or hands or anything else that belongs to a body. It won't appear to him as one idea or one kind of knowledge. It is not anywhere 
in another thing as in an animal or in earth or in heaven or in anything else, but itself by itself with itself. It is always one in form and all the other beautiful things share in that in such a way that when those others come to be or pass away, this does not become the least bit smaller nor greater nor suffer any change. So when someone rises by these stages through loving boys correctly and begins to see this beauty, he has almost grasped his goal. This is what it is to go aright or be led by another into the mystery of love. One goes always upward for the sake of this beauty, starting out from beautiful things and using them like rising stairs. From one body to two, and from two to all beautiful bodies, and from beautiful bodies to beautiful customs, and from customs to learning beautiful things, and from these lessons he derives at the end, at this lesson, which is learning of this very beauty, so that in the end he comes to know just what it is to be beautiful. I'm going to skip a bit, right? And we go to the end, and we then hear Socrates talking about um, this is a bit I've underlined. Do you think it would be a poor life for a human being to look there and to behold it by that which he ought and to be with it? The thought is that as you're learning to love the more and more beautiful things, you're actually also developing in your soul the virtue, okay, the faculty for apprehending that beauty. So it's like you're, you're growing that thermostat in you, right? That's the virtue. And at the end of the story, you have this perfect virtue that perfectly responds to the perfect goodness of the good thing. So if you look on your handout, you'll see you know, we have platonic valuing. In platonic valuing, you have a platonic valuing faculty, right? So your thermostat, and you have like a good thing. And you're always going to trade the good thing for a better thing. You're never going to be attached to anything because all you care about is value, the value in the thing, right? And so you'll always trade up. Um, if, but if you look at figure two, the kind of valuing we do, okay? Human, mortal, unplatonic valuing, we might value, say, beauty, but we don't value it directly by just loving beauty. What we love is the beauty in something, like maybe the beauty in this cup, right? And I love it by way of certain um, attitudes in me. And there's a kind of attachment to this particular beauty, such that if this cup gets cracked, I'm not just like, oh, okay, well, the thermostat just went down. I'll just go find some other beauty. I, I cared about this one in particular. So there's an attachment between... My value apparatus, the beliefs and the desires and the emotions that I had about this, to the beauty in this. So there's a kind of attached form of valuing that we're doing, and that makes us vulnerable, right? Because we're attached to the things and not only to the value, that's what makes us vulnerable to bivalence. So, um, you know, one way to think about this is to see that the big inheritors of this moment in Plato were the Stoics right? Um, the Stoics famously just rejected most forms of valuing on the grounds that we shouldn't allow the world to dictate whether or not our mental activity is going well or badly, right? So like, don't love your children or your job or your health or your friends because those things can be taken away from you or betray you. So don't get attached to them. Don't make yourself vulnerable to negative emotion because negative emotion is a mistake. The Stoics were really I think, um, maybe the one group of philosophers who really apprehended this bivalence problem. Now, it's also true that they might take the prize, maybe hotly contested, for being the philosophical school offering the most unrealistic advice, <laughs> the advice that I just gave, right? Um, and I, so I'm not a stoic, right? I don't think you shouldn't ever love anyone because then you'll have these negative emotions. Um, that is, I think loving is worth the price, but I think that the Stoics were right about the price, which is that when you value or love something, 
that you can't control. So something that isn't like the form of the beautiful, that necessarily has its value bound in with it, right? When you value something like that, then you put your mind out there for the world to disrupt. Thanks.